Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the podcast, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Such an honor. Thank you for being here. It's a real privilege. Thank you for having us. Appreciate that. So 40 years you've been making music for other people. If there is anybody who any of us and the generation after us and the generation before us have heard of, any of those artists, you all have written and or produced music for them. This year, you have released for the first time an album of your own, volume one, uh, your own music. What spurred the two of you to do that? I know it had been in the works for a long time. Yeah, really long time. So I'll try to tell a short story, of, of, a version of the story. But 35 years ago, we were doing the Control album with Janet. But before we started doing the Control album, we had actually started a Jam and Lewis album. That was our intent to make an album. And we had, um, you know, started working on tracks for that. So when we got into doing Janet, we had finished Janet's album, at least we thought it was finished. And John McClain, who was the A&R person at A&M Records, came up to listen to what we had done to Minneapolis. And um, we played him Pleasure Principle and Funny How Time Flies and When I Think of You and Control and Nasty. And we're thinking, oh, we're good. And he goes, like all A&R people, I just need one more. So what are you talking about one more? So anyway, we go to the studio the next day. He, oh, no, we had not even go to the studio. We get in the car, we're driving around, we put a cassette in. Terry says, listen to this, this is our record that we're working on. And the third song in, he goes, that's the one I need for Janet. And we're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so the next day we go to the studio, we put the song on, we didn't tell her we were gonna play it. We just put it on. She said, who's that for? And we said, well, you if you want it. And she said, oh, I want it. And that song became, what have you done for me lately? So that was the song that ended up launching her career, ending ours, or at least temporarily for our album. <laughs> And uh, 35, it's taken 35 years, you know, since that point to kind of get back to, to where we're at now. You know, and over the years, we would, with other artists, we would say, would you like to do something for our album? They'd go, yeah. And then when the song would be done, they'd be like, oh, no, we got to keep that for ourselves. They're so, like, I want it. Yeah, exactly. So we finally got selfish five years ago. We were inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And we were in, inducted the same year as Babyface. And when the reporters ask us, what hadn't we done yet that we still wanted to do? We looked at Babyface and said, well, we've never done a song with Babyface. And then we said, and we never finished our own album. And then our third thing we said is that we, we never have played live our own songs. So kind of that was the idea. Like, let's work with Babyface, let's do an album, and let's do a tour. So those are the three things. So two of the three we've accomplished. The tour, obviously, we'll wait till things get a little safer out there, but we'll get around to doing that too. But that's kind of the version of why it's taken so long to get to this point. So we will be seeing a tour uh, from this amazing album. The album, Volume One, everybody, Volume One, released this year under BMG. It is spectacular. There are anthems on this song. Boys to Men's on the album. Mary J. Blige is on the album. Sounds of Blackness is on the album. So the 40 years that you all have been in the business, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. You've worked with so many people. Is there a favorite album? Like when you look back, on your body of work? Are you every, is there some particular album or song that you hear that you're like, wow, this one makes me happy? Terry. I think I, I, think I can pick out a song. I can't pick out an album though. What's the song? Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness. <sighs> and I then wish, a, close, yeah. a close second would be Open My Heart with the Alana Adams. Oh, yes, yes, yes. What be, it, the, in, in my top two. 
What about you, Jimmy? I have the same top two, and and I don't feel like it's um, I, I, it's hard to characterize it as favorites, but if there were two songs that if you know you were going to bury them in a time capsule and say a hundred years from now somebody has to open this time capsule, and then you mark the time capsule Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, those songs would tell you everything about us that you would need to know what was important to us musically, sonically, message wise. It tells you everything you would need to know about us. Well, it's interesting that you pick those two because uh, your team sent over the album and I've listened to it a number of times and I was just listening to it again with my hairstylist and we were saying, you know, it feels, it's optimistic. I mean, especially, um, oh, forgive me, I forget the name of the Boys to Men track, but it feels like, yes, it's like, you know, you just want to get up and keep it moving. And I feel like, you know, people need music to lift spirits. I mean, time sometimes can feel rather dark. Let me ask you a slightly different question and you don't have to name names. Have you ever written or produced something and then heard it and you're like, oh my God, they butchered it. Have you ever been like, like, I wish we hadn't given them that song. You don't have to name names. I won't ask you to do that. But has that ever happened? Fortunately, I don't think we've ever had that experience because um, everything that we do, first of all, there's a thing that we call hang factor. Before we work with anyone, we have to know that we can hang out and we can be cool. (laughs) And we're fans of all the people that we work with. So um, that becomes the first prerequisite to, to making anything happen. Okay, so secondly, then inspiration is everything from there. So we get inspired and then we create something specifically for that particular artist. So at that point, it's kind of hard to create something that's so terrible that you don't want anybody to hear. Now, I can't say that we create everything great because, you know, we we do some stuff that we love so much we keep it to ourselves. But <laughs> uh, it's been like a, a great journey um, of creativity over the years. And we've never had the, I guess there was one guy that we worked with initially before uh, we brought Alexander on Neil in. And he was a singer that was sent to us and we were working with him. And every day he kept saying his voice was skipping. Man, my voice is skipping. <laughs> and so finally we had to tell him to skip himself back to LA. <laughs> but other than that, it's all been a breeze. It's all been really cool. Let me ask you this. I want to play a little game, okay? Because your music has just traversed so many generations and so many presidencies. If I name a president, could you pick a song that defined or that you think was emblematic of that presidency? And we'll start way back in the 80s. Let's start with Ronald Reagan. During that, I mean, that was the era of control. You guys had so many big hits then. What song would, of yours would you say defined the Reagan presidency? And we'll go through all, through, we'll go through all the presidents uh, up to Joe Biden. Okay. These are like the kind of nerdy games that I play. So, Ronald Reagan. I, you know what? I love this because this is, it's, it's very, when, when you're old and grizzled as we are, it's very hard to be asked a question that we haven't heard before. But I do believe this, this is one. one we have not heard before. This is good. Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Mm-hmm. Okay, so President Reagan, what's the song? Uh, Reagan. What was the years of Reagan? 8088. I'm going to go Human, Human League. Yeah. Oh, that was a great song. Wow. You with that, Terry? 
Are you with that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that one. I can live with that. Okay, uh, President Bush the first. Give me the years, because I don't know. Uh, so he's 88, 92. Ooh, I'm going to go. Oh, I'm going to go. Oh, you know what? It's got to be. I'm going to go Can You Stand the Rain, new edition. Oh, wow. Big things happened in that presidency, too. That's a good one. Very good, Jim. You're good at this game. Yeah, this well, is good. Over the years, I can kind of, right? I don't know. The presidents, I don't know. But the okay. years, I can kind okay. of. Because, um, like, I mean, there were specific things happening. Now, here's one. President Clinton. So that's 92 through 2000. He had two terms. Did a lot of things. Uh, made a lot of news. A lot of things that uh, got him into some trouble. He was impeached. Uh, but he was also a very popular president. Some say that he brought the Democrats back to life. 92 to 2000, what's the song? I gotta say optimistic on that one because actually the sound's actually performed at the White House a couple times, actually. So yeah, that's very true. Yeah, for, for Clinton, absolutely. Yeah. That was, you know, he, he, he liked us. He yeah. actually wore, we had logo wear back uh, in the day, our original logo, which was the hat and the feet, the hat with the feet coming out. And he actually had, we had sent him some stuff and I ended up playing golf with him. And on my golf bag, I had the logo. And he said, where do I know that logo from? And we said, oh, we sent you some stuff. He said, oh, those black, uh, like uh, warmups. He said, I love those. I love those. I wear those all the time. So it was, it was very cool. Very cool. President George W. Bush. So where are we now? We're 2000, 2004, then 2004, 2008. Ooh, that's a tough. That's a tough one. So we had 9/11 during that period. Right. We had the Iraq War. Ah. What's the theme for that time? I'm, I'm gonna. Well, I'm just gonna say just because it, it was a. I remember obviously 9/11 when all that uh, happened. Obviously, but um, it's tw- that was 20 years ago. So I, I'm gonna say all for you, Janet. Mm. Where were you guys at 9/11? What were you doing when that happened? I remember I golfed that day, ironically, and I was, uh, we were at the golf course watching in the clubhouse. I, I don't even remember anything about the golf game that day. I mean, I probably sucked as I always do, but I just remember sitting in the clubhouse, just eyes glued to the TV. Like it was, you couldn't even, couldn't even take it in, you know, what, what was happening. It was, it was surreal. Where were you, Terry? I had just arrived uh, back in Minneapolis from New York. And I remember laying in the bed, watching it on television in real time. And just, and I, I kept saying, oh Lord, they better get the people out of the other tower because it's gonna fall too. It's like somebody that's bold enough to make that happen is, is it's, gotta, it's gotta fall. So I just remember just laying there just, just in terror, basically, just for the people that were there, knowing that I was just there. Wow. Thank goodness that uh, you're still with us. So what's your song for the Obama presidency? Mm. Okay, what was the years of that? Obama. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened. I know, but I just need to know. But just happened. True, no, you're right, you're right. Here's the thing. I got, I got 60 plus years of life in me. So a four-year period, the percentage of my life in four years is a lot less, I guess, it is than for you, for us, you youngins. So. Yes. 
60 is the new 30. 60 is the new 30. Okay, so oh, Obama. Well, 60, 60, baby. I'm sorry. Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Obama was 2008 through 2016. A mm. big historical moment. When you were younger, did either of you think that you would see an African-American president? No, I never thought that. I didn't either. I never thought that. But he was the perfect candidate. Though. Why do you say that? Because he was able to navigate blackness and politics fine line where most people couldn't. He was black enough to be black, but not so black that white people couldn't accept it. It was just the perfect blend of things. Not necessarily everybody's cup of tea, but it hit the nail where it needed to be hit in order to get the first African-American president. I also think he was very unifying. I think he was very unifying. He, he, he really illustrated the commonalities so that you didn't look at black and white as separate things. You looked at it as everybody was people. Um, good ideas were good ideas no matter where they were coming from. He was a collaborator. And he also was one of the first people to really embrace social media, the internet, and made people who never felt they were involved in politics, because always politics, if you thought about, you know, and not that he didn't do it, but, you know, the fundraising dinners, of, you know, are $1,000 a plate or $5,000 a plate. But he went to the people and said, I, just a dollar, I'll, I'll take a dollar or whatever. And it made those people feel, I think, involved in the process, which was amazing. I remember going to the, um, seeing him speak in Denver um, for the, I think it was the convention down there or something. And, and it was just, a, it was a stadium full of people, but it was people that looked like me, but that looked like everybody. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen that before. You know, you normally, when you looked at a political crowd, it was all white folks, basically. And that was the first time I saw that mix of people. And it felt very powerful and it felt very needed and it felt very timely. I want to go back uh, to what Terry just said about navigating Blackness, because right now is really a time, I think, where so many young Black people, uh, young African-Americans, feel disconnected from the system. They feel disconnected from the country. You're a little bit older than them and you've, you've seen a lot. I'm playing this strange little game just as a reminder about how many things we've come through. I mean, I remember listening to Control. I remember you guys when I was in middle school. And at the time, I didn't think that the world, I didn't think I'd see, I mean, nobody talked about having a black president in the 80s. You know, that seemed like a distant dream. And now you hear kids say that they think things are worse than ever before. So, you know, Terry, you talked about what navigating blackness means. What's your advice for people um, as to how to do it in a world that sometimes seems as divided as it is right now? Okay, let me backtrack first because we were always hopeful of a black presence in the White House. You know, whether it was, uh, I think Shirley Chisholm ran mm. and Al Sharpton ran. Jesse Jackson ran. There have been other ran. people that run. So other people we, we run. were always engaged in that process. Mm -hmm. But they were a little bit one side or the other wasn't going to work. It just, everybody couldn't get along with it. And uh, President Obama was that guy who kind of worked for everybody and who 
who allowed everybody to see themselves in that position. And so, but what that did is it took the other side, the white side of things. For a lot of people, they just didn't like to see that that view kind of change things because it gave the black side of me a lot of hope. You know, um, my wife is from the islands and they see everything through black eyes because everybody that runs everything is black. So it makes sense to them that when they see themselves in any successful position, it's a possibility and, you know, a probability because, hey, that's what it is. Here in the States, it's a little different. So Mm -hmm. we never saw ourselves in that position before, but now I think we do. And I think there's hope and it's it's a little bit scary. There's little little buzzwords and things that scare uh, people of different nationalities. But everybody has to understand that we're all Americans. That's what we are. And the way I say things is pretty simple because I don't like to talk a lot. But (laughs) I'll say this very simply. If you can't want the same thing for others that you want for yourself and your family, then maybe you don't deserve it either. So I say to anyone who is Black, Hispanic, whatever, Asian, dream your dream, do your thing, stay engaged. The process is going to take care of itself, but you have to dare to dream and don't take no for an answer because this world is just as much yours as it is anyone else's. But sometimes you have to claim it. No one's going to give it to you. Mm. Sometimes you have to claim it. No one is going to give it to you. Uh, That is a mantra that we all need to remember. You know, Jimmy, when I think about your music and all the types of sounds that you all have created and all of the different sorts of artists with whom you've worked, I mean, we just got a sampling and I know we have two presidencies left. I don't know if we'll get to Trump and Biden. Uh, (laughs) um, But- uh, They got the song for Trump. What's the song? I got you said it. What's the song? Fake. <laughs> but that was a different era, but it's a but it applies. <laughs> you know, and so when I think about your music and all these different people who you've worked with, you to manage to navigate all of these different musical categories. You know, music was and still is, but I think less so. It seemed to be really racially balkanized. And you brought different sounds together with different artists from different backgrounds. I mean, how do you, do you think that you really sort of laid the groundwork for kind of some of the fuzzier barriers that we see now? Because, you know, it used to be that just black folks sang R&B and, you know, white folks did this, but you guys mixed it all up with everybody. I just think music is the uniter. I think it's interesting. I always say during these pandemic times, when you're on Zoom calls, and you may be on a Zoom call and all of a sudden you're on with, you know, you look at your screen, there might be 10 people on the screen, 20 people on the screen, and there's black, white, young, old, straight, gay, like every combination of people. You may be talking to people in other countries. And when you're speaking, maybe they're not understanding what you're saying or whatever. As Soon as you put a song on, you see the whole screen doing like this. And I always say it's a quilt. Music is the thread of the quilt, right? It's the thing that brings everybody together. So we've always thought of music, we've always taken it as a tremendous 
a privilege and obligation to make music sometimes not that people want to hear, but what people need to hear. You know, Optimistic was born out of something that we felt people needed to hear at that point in time. And the gifts that we had been given to write music, or as I say, be, just be the deliverer of God's music, I guess is, is really mm. what it is. That to me is really the, the thing. So we've always treated it like that. And we always have treated it with longevity in mind. When we did our very first, when Control happened really big for us, we did our first kind of interview with the local paper, like the local boys make good, right? And um, I remember the, the columnist asked us, he, he said, hey, um, you guys are the hottest producers and how does that feel? And we said, we don't really want to be the hottest producers. We just want to be warm for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he kind of laughed when we said it. But 30 years later, when he was interviewing us, uh, when we did Unbreakable with Janet, and Unbreakable opened at number one, and he started the interview by saying, wow, you guys have had number one records across four decades. How does that feel? And we said, remember what we told you when you talked to us 30 years ago? Warm for a long time. Number one is more than warm. <laughs> well, you know, but that was, that was the intent. So what that did is it informed the decision-making process, who to work with, when to work with them, whatever. We didn't rush anything and we didn't chase anything. There were certain people that, you know, at one point in time said, oh, you should work with them, you should work with them. And sometimes we'd go, yeah, we'd love to work with them, but now it's not the right time or not the right circumstance or whatever. But we would trust that if it was supposed to happen, it would happen. And that's kind of the way that, that that's happened for us. It is impossible to listen to your new album, Volume One, and not like move ahead. So my hairstylist, Lalisa, as this was happening, she's like, you know, ask them about whether they think this album is going to usher in a new era uh, in R&B. You know, there's been like, much has been said about the death of R&B. Do you think that this album is going to usher in an R&B renaissance, as it were? What do you think? The R&B never dies. It, I don't it think will so never either. Die. You know, um, People's tastes change. Um, people's taste in artists change the, for whatever reason. And we don't, you know, fight that. It is what it, it is. So what we try to do is make the music that we love with the people that we love. And we hope everybody else agrees with us. So while we you know, love to bask in the world of brilliance, <laughs> as people like to call you, uh, you, you're just doing what you love, man. And that's that's it. That's the journey and people you meet along the way. That's important. The music is the most important thing in the whole process. And, you know, you're only as good as your next song. So yesterday's score doesn't count today's game. We got to get it again. So that's what keeps us going. That's the process. Yeah, it's the what have you done for me lately theory. There you go. I know you used to do good songs. (laughs) (laughs) What have you done for me lately? You know, but but this album is just a reflection of the things that we've learned over the, how many years now? 40. 40. Oh, 40? Yeah, I I don't do trivia. Because today, every day is a new day for me. I don't, I'm a forward slash. I don't think about yesterday too much other than the history of it so I know what not to do. So I'm willing to try anything going forward. Can I just say this? I do think the album... I don't know whether it's a renaissance or whatever you want to call it. First of all, we're in really good company with all the artists that are on the album. But I do think it is a moment of, we, we, what we set out to do with the album, we call it nostalgia. 
right? It's that idea of discovery, of hearing something new for the first time and that and that rush that that gives you, right? But also hearing something that's familiar, that gives you a comfort and gives you, you know, it, it makes you feel good, right? So we think we've tried to kind of blur the lines there and do that. And I can tell you that the artists themselves in, in a lot of cases fell back in love with themselves again. You know, Babyface, when he heard his song, he was like, wow, that sounds really good. And we were like, of course it does. It's Babyface. What do you think? It's supposed to sound like. But he was able to fall in love with it because he didn't have to do all the work. Like normally he's doing all the meticulous, you know, production work. But we did it. He just turned it over to us. He said, you guys do it. So when he heard himself, he heard him. It was like hearing himself for the first time and really appreciating hearing himself without having to put all of the meticulous work into it and listen through the mistakes like he would normally do. Um, Sean from Boys to Men cried when they heard their song, Next Best Day, but he just cried because it took him to the things that were important in music, the lyrics, the live strings, the acoustic instruments, um, the modulations and key changes and bridges and all of those things that matter to him musically. So I think if the artists feel that way about it, about the songs and about their songs and their contribution, then hopefully that's the way the fans feel when they listen. They fall back in love with those artists or they remember why they fell in love with those artists for the first time. That's what happened to me. I mean, no joke. Uh, it's I think nostalgia is exactly the way of describing it because it reminded me of all these things, but it feels very fresh and new. I know you two have to go. I cannot tell you how much fun this has been for me. You honor me with your presence. Everybody, Terry, you said the question is, what have you done for me lately? What they have done is volume one. It is magnificent. It is absolutely magnificent. Uh, you must hear this. Thank you, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Thank you for being here. Godspeed. And uh, thanks for keep making it happen. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse Thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.